0: So it's been a long time coming, but I'm really excited to talk to my next guest because there's been a lot of back and forth over months and messing up time zones on my end, and they have a small child to navigate around and work and international travel. So here we are at last. So I'm really pleased to welcome Maria Sharon Del Rio, who is Associate Dean of the School of Education and Professor of the School of Counseling Graduate Program at Brooklyn College which is pretty, a pretty big deal. They're a pre-doctoral Ford Foundation and APA's Minority Fellowship Program Fellow. They received their PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Puerto Rico. After their clinical internship at Harvard Medical School, they worked as an assistant child psychologist at the Washington Heights Family Health Center, a primary care clinic that serves a predominantly Latinx immigrant community in New York City. So as you can imagine, it's important. It's probably been intense. They're also an active leader in GLARE, which is GLBTQ, Advocacy in Research and Education. They are committed to the development of multicultural competencies in counselors, psychologists, and educators using experiential and effective educational approaches. Their scholarship and advocacy focus on ethnic and cultural minority psychology and education, multicultural competencies, intersectionality, LGBTQ issues, gender variance, spirituality rel- resiliency and well-being is pretty broad pretty deep pretty impressive so if i just read that and you wonder what the heck this is all about because there are a lot of words in there that are big juicy juicy concepts we're going to get into that so welcome maria it's a pleasure to finally have you here
1: thank you it is a pleasure to finally be here too i'm very excited about this opportunity to talking to you and you know to your listeners um of the Discomfort Practice.
0: Well, so much of what we're going to talk about is obviously going to be about the importance of education in helping people to understand themselves, understand each other, find language that works. I've talked about language in a lot of episodes, but also really diving into things like social work and the importance of having psychologists and educators in the world to actually understand the full range of people <laughs> rather than existing in that binary world of, you know, there's male, there's female, there's this, there's that. Everything's cut and dried, black or white. And that's just not how it works. So having people who are actually working with children and minorities or people with just a very different, a different experience of the world is so critical because this can make or break people, right?
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Absolutely. And it reminds us that, um, oftentimes we are so bogged down in our day to day, um, that, you know, our brain just, you know, assumes that, you know, reality is what we have in front of us. And that may be our reality, but that is not just all that there is. Right. So, um, uh, being able to, you know, address people who are seeing things for the first time as it happens with children, you know, and babies, right? That give you a fresh perspective of things you have seen all the time, uh, and how they encounter and problems, you know, and how they, you know, tackle problems, mm. uh, expands, you know, our, our vision. And same thing with people who have grown up, you know, uh, differently than we have and who come from, you know, uh, different places, different Climates, you know, uh, different, you know, social environments. Yeah, absolutely, it definitely expands us. Well, it's just about
0: whether or not people have a place in the world, or they have space for themselves, based on the language mm-hmm. we use and the education system we have, isn't it? So, let's go to the first official question I always ask, which you know about, which is, what's an uncomfortable moment that's changed your life and shaped who you are and what you do in the world?
1: Well, I think there have been multiple moments uh from early in my life so i couldn't really just pick one but i'll i'll try to give you a brief glimpse about you know some of these uh you know first of all i i am a queer and gender queer uh, and i was uh, born and raised in puerto rico um uh, which you know means that you know and you know this was several decades ago um when you know there's there's you know the binary was very much you know uh strong and uh and seriously uh drilled into us and uh, from very early on, I felt that I just did not conform you know to the journey that I was assigned um you know and I was assigned uh female at birth and Puerto Rico like many uh, other Latin American countries um you know do um, do like to showcase the binary in very extreme ways. So, you know, if you're assigned female at birth, you know, uh, you are not just, you know, feminine. You are in many ways hyper feminine. Right. And um, if, when you're assigned male at birth, you know, the level of masculinity, you know, both visible and, you know, in the invisible traits, uh, often it's also highlighted. And uh, that was that was never me. So, you know, from, you know, the time that, you know, I could sense, you know, difference, which usually happens with children in terms of gender, uh, by the time that they're two and three years old, they begin to understand how we classify gender Mm -hmm. um, and other classifications in their lives. um, I understood that what I was meant to assume was not who I was. And that made it very hard uh, for me. because. I needed to perform in a way um, that was not uh, true to how I was seeing myself in the world as I was growing in my own perception of the world. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, you know, from very early on, you know, um, uh, girls wore all dresses and not only, you know, back way back then and, and still into this point, you know, very formal dresses require lots of layering and, in you know, incredibly prickly layering uh, so that, you know, dresses puff up and um you know and things look cute mm-hmm. yeah. and they had you know almost a visceral reaction you know to wearing any of the things and um it was very verbal from the beginning and uh i could understand my mom said and my grandma would say you know this is how i needed to act and and react and and um it was really heavy and it was just not for me I, eventually as i was growing up and i could develop more negotiation skills you know i had to uh, convince my mother that you know we would pack a bag with comfortable clothes in which i could run you know and get dirty and you know uh, kick balls and you know mm-hmm. climb trees um and uh, i would negotiate down the time that i had to perform in this other dresses but um uh, just from very early on knowing and and having to sit with the disapproving looks about what i wanted versus what i was expected to do and also um just trying to fit in in clothes that were not um, uh, meant for uh, who I was. Right, It was um, was very uncomfortable. Um, and and later on, you know, as I, I grew up, also my um, the eldest of three, and my youngest sister um, developed a chronic um, illness uh, very early in her life since she was eight years old. And, um, also having to deal with the fact that I could see someone who was constantly in pain and there was nothing that I could do with that and having to sit not only in their pain, but also in their discomfort. Um, and how people with physical disabilities, uh, also back then, even more than now, you know, the world is not made for them to easily uh, go about, you know, and do everything that we do. Um, that was also, comfortable, you know, constant uncomfortable moments, you know, that I think shaped me in, in many ways.
0: Well, wow, So really early encounters with just the reality that the world, the world wasn't really for you, that you had to perform the roles that were asked of you or given to you by society and just knowing so early that they didn't fit you, that the world wasn't mm-hmm. comfortable for someone you loved, your sister. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a very clear, clear thread then to how you became what you are now, which is a really high level educator of educators and an advocate for creating space for people within our educational system and our social care system and society, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and, uh, very much also for me, you know, even before I educated the, uh, the profession that I chose to be a psychologist, right. Um, what I had to do, uh, the skills that I had to do was put myself in other people's Place, empathize, and also help them, you know, um, uh, think of ways of being able to tackle, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, a long term trauma, but other times just everyday struggles, you know, in ways that were more uh, adaptive for them. Mm -hmm. So, from very early on, being able to experience discomfort uh, and to see other people experience discomfort, um, and also the way that uh, my mother raised me uh, really strengthen my empathy muscle. Um, and, uh, and I chose a profession, you know, where that was what I was uh, meant to do. And later on I chose to train people, you know, to be able to, uh, do that profession, to be counselors and psychologists and educators, you know, who provided space, um, and support for people, um, who, you know, were experienced different types of marginalizations and oppressions. Because
0: mm, there, oh, there's so much to dive into there because we could talk about intersectionality. We can talk about education and how things hopefully are changing where the people who are doing the educating and holding space for young people growing up in particular have a different understanding of what they might be, what the possibilities are for them to be. And it isn't just sort of binary, but I guess I'm interested in hearing how how education is changing, how the systems are changing to be more, well, supportive of these intersectional identities and to, to people who maybe don't know that term or are a bit fuzzy about it, how would you explain intersectionality?
1: Well, intersectionality is the concept that highlights how, you know, different parts of ourselves. Um, are related to each other in ways that make our experience different, uh, from other people that may hold some parts of ourselves, identities similar to ours, but others not. So, uh, for example, you know, for in someone who has been, uh, assigned birth, you know, as, you know, assigned at birth a birth female and, uh, identify as cisgender, which means someone who is aligned, you know, their internal gender with the external expectations of the world. Um, Uh, they are experiencing the world as, uh, women, as female, um, and, uh, have, uh, may have a lot of shared experiences with other women. Um, uh, however, you know, there are other aspects of their identity that will make their experience unique from other people. So for example, you know, if, you know, for uh, many of your listeners, you know, if you're a woman and you remember, you know, your relationship with your mother and whether your mother, you know, could ex- understand some of the things that you're going through, particularly in adolescence, where it's when a lot of these things clash, right? Age is one part of our identity as well, mm-hmm. right? So, generational influences, you know, shift how we experience gender. So, the way that our mothers were raised, you know, there are some similarities to, to the ways that we're raised, but also some things that are also very different. And then, if you add to that other layers such as race, right? The experience of someone, you know, who is uh, cisgender, who are comfortable with their gender, assigned gender and female, um, but who um, are of an ethnic background that is identified as white is going to be very different, mm-hmm. you know, than the experience of someone who has an et- ethnic and racial background that is identified as black uh, or Latinx um, or um, Asian to speak Islander or other marginalized communities, depending on the country that you're in. And, um uh, and I, you know, primarily I'm going to talk from the framework of, you know, um, a, a U.S.-based education because not because I am being U.S.-centric, but because that is the area in which I am experienced. But a lot of the mm-hmm. things I think um, will apply because, you know, systems of oppression um, operate similarly in systemic ways in different places, even if the categories are mm-hmm. slightly different. So it is in the intersection of our identities that, for example, the experience of a white woman. It's going to be different than the experience of a black woman. Um, and, and it's not just about their gender. because It's also about the, the possibility of their gender uh, and how their gender actually makes their racial experience differently and how the race makes their gender experience differently. So that's yeah. the piece that is about intersectionality.
0: Mm. That was a really good in-depth explanation, but also very clear. Because I think it's one of those terms that you hear a lot, maybe if, You know, if you sort of are in a field where you're looking at diversity or inclusion, or even if you're a yoga teacher, but a lot of people, I think, aren't quite clear on what that looks like in sort of real life. Yeah, it's just if you were to look at the person in the desk next to yours or the yoga mat next to yours, it's not assuming that you have the same experience and realizing that gender, sexual orientation, country of origin, color of your skin will give you a very different experience. And so the mix of those things intersects to make your life a very different experience. Mm -hmm. So how has education or how do you hope the educational system can facilitate a cultural shift that is more, well, I guess, what are we aiming for with this? Equitable, fair, open, liberated. What, what's the aim?
1: Well, I think that, you know, the aim is liberation, right? Um, And, uh, you know, I come from a background um, uh, from a Latin American perspective, you know, um, that of psychology and the psychology of liberation, which, you Mm -hmm. know, was um, uh, how within psychology, the movement of, you know, the um, uh, educational liberation of of Paulo Freire, how that was translated into psychology. And, you know, one of the main uh, persons to that was... Ignacio Martín Baró. Um, uh, so from a perspective, from a perspective of liberation, um, uh, yeah, you know, the outcome is that we are all working towards, you know, the liberation of all of us, mm-hmm. not just some of us, but all of us. And the reason why, you know, this, um, uh, is important to stress is because at the core, all systems of oppression work in a similar way and they're all interconnected. Mm-hmm right? So a system of oppression, whether it's racism, sexism, uh, classism, uh, ageism, ableism, um, they're all, first of all, divide the world into, you know, two groups, uh, in a binary, right? In which, you know, there are some people who, um, the world is made for them and some people who are marginalized in ways. Um, and the roots of this, you know, we can, you know, the, would be you know the topic of you know a whole a PhD yeah <laughs> yes um, uh, but basically again you divide the world and then one into two groups and then one group you know has you know advantages that the other group doesn't um, and uh, the group that has advantages has this privileges right that the other group doesn't and the privileges are not things that are necessarily out of the ordinary on the contrary. The way the system works is that you're privileged, actually, the default. And if you're privileged, you actually don't know necessarily that you have these things until you're faced with someone that doesn't and you are able to empathize with them and see their own uh, uh, experience. So we come from a place in which, you know, groups who are privileged. It exists with people who are being oppressed by the system, who are being denied the same opportunities and advantages. Um, and it is in this particular aspect, the division of the world in two places with one that holds, you know, resources and places that the other doesn't, that all the systems of, um, of oppression intersect. So what we are seeking, uh, in general is for people to be able to, uh, Uh, engage in their liberation, which uh, first of all, you know, as a marginalized person, is to understand the roots of your oppression. Yeah, And then as uh, someone who's not marginalized, to understand what you're benefiting from, so that then you can advocate for those that don't have it, so that everyone is sharing, you know, the experience of opportunities um, uh, that are similar, and no one has, you know, advantages over the other. Um, So I believe that the goal, like Paulo Freire, the goal, the goal of education needs to be liberation. Um, and that liberation comes first with conscientization. And, and that means that we be, need to become aware of how the system works, how it has worked for us or against us, and in order to be able to dismantle it and work for others to be able to have the same opportunities as we do. Mm. Whether that is what the systems of education are currently doing, you know, that is also a different piece. But I would like to think that Many of us are working to create educators, and mental health professionals, uh, health professionals who are aware of these issues and are actively um, working, you know, against the marginalization, you know, of people uh, across different identities.
0: Well, because what is the impact of a mental health professional who isn't aware of this and isn't necessarily consciously working toward that because they just don't understand maybe their own privilege? What what damage can they do, or what opportunities to do good can they miss?
1: Yes, that's a that's a really important question and and a very, um, and a very important a really relevant one, you know, to the work of conscientization and liberation. Um, when the system works well, you know, and it works well for people who have the privileges, you know, again, we are blind to our privilege. We don't know the doors are open for us because we have never seen them close in our faces, Mm -hmm. right? So privilege is a blind spot, and this is key, right? Because most people, and at least you know, I mean, and I mean, I identify with two professions, both psychology and education, mm-hmm. who assume that people, you know, are um, uh, good, you know, and actually are um, in their best, you know, uh, th- their best selves and bring their best selves whenever possible. Most of us would not be comfortable with ourselves knowing that, you know, we enjoy things that other people that deserve them just as much as we do, don't have. Right. So if we were all aware of this, you know, most of us, again, being, you know, good hearted, you know, and people who are, you know, believing justice would do everything in our power to change it. So the systems persist because, you know, average people are not necessarily aware of how they're benefiting. Mm. Um, and um, are not necessarily aware of what they can do to actually, you know, shift things so that you know everyone can enjoy the same thing, the things that they deserve. Um, so you know, because we are blind in those aspects, right? It is really hard to challenge ourselves, you know, and also to be able to empathize with something you don't see, and that is. Um, for a mental health professional and for a health professional you know that involves that you're not seeing the full person that is in front of you now think about that in terms of uh, you know your ability to diagnose an illness your ability to help someone you know uh works through a problem mm-hmm. if you don't see the whole person you know you're not going to achieve much and the other person is not gonna it's gonna felt unseen because i think that regardless of how uh privilege how much privilege we have in our identities at some point or another, we have all felt unseen. We have all felt that someone has not seen us for who we are, and they don't necessarily have to say us to say something for us to feel it right they don't have to see you oh no, they don't have to tell you no no, no you know you're wrong with this or no, no no, you don't know enough in an interaction, you can see and you can feel without verbalizing when someone doesn't understand their experience when someone doesn't necessarily want to understand of their your experience because it is outside of their zone of comfort. Um, And because that is something that you can feel without saying, you know, teachers and educators who are unaware of their privileges are impacting, you know, their students. Their students know that they are not seen. Their students have yet another experience, you know, of someone who is not seeing them fully. mental health providers or health providers, right? You know, their clients, their patients, know that they're not being treated, you know, um, you know, wholly, you know, and therefore you also continue to create a distrust of the system because, you know, if my doctor doesn't see me, if my doctor doesn't listen to me, I'm less likely to go to the doctor, you know, and then it also becomes, which is what is in many cases, a public health issue as well, right? So, Our privilege is what we don't know that we don't know. Mm. And we can create, we can do a lot of harm, you know, when we don't acknowledge our privilege. The thing is that for many of us, it is very uncomfortable to acknowledge our privilege mm. because we have to learn the things that we have not learned in a lifetime. And most of us feel uncomfortable when we realize that we have spent a lot of time not knowing something. That is kind of in front of our faces, yeah. right? Um, it also makes it uncomfortable because you know we think back as to the things that we trust. Within many cases, you know, it could be you know our parents, it could be you know the, the state, the government, you know, our teachers. And why didn't they teach us this this pieces that are that we're missing, this viewpoint that we're missing? So it can undermine our trust mm. in something that actually. Helps us keep us safe, right? Because, you know, we feel safe when we feel that we can trust the people that are looking out after us. But if they are not giving us the whole story, then where are we? Mm. Um, so it does, it can create, you know, um, an emotional uh, sense of uh, mistrust and certainly very discomfort to be able to acknowledge um, what we have been missing mm. and how we have been benefiting, you know, in ways. That we didn't know. And in some cases how we have continued to perpetuate the inequalities, you know, whether um, completely unconsciously or, you know, because we have learned discourses. um, That is, you know, what happens, you know, why people who are not as well as ourselves are not there. Right. Because usually it's because they're not deserving. They don't work hard or there's something really wrong with them. And, you know, sometimes we have operated in our lives according to those assumptions. And to grapple with how we were wrong on those instances, Mm -hmm. you know, can also be emotionally painful.
0: And also because when you're talking about, you're talking about mental health professionals. So these are often people with PhDs, educators who are highly educated and they're probably passionate about what they do. So to actually help them get to a point of understanding that there's some training they were lacking, some perspective they are lacking, and that that has had a really negative impact on their own impact. That's a really hard pill to swallow. I can imagine. And Absolutely. There's, there's ego, there's shame. There's the fact that also Absolutely. when you're in a position of privilege, you have power that you don't necessarily want to have to acknowledge because then you feel like you should be guilty for it or something. So yeah, I have this conversation about white privilege in particular a lot and People are, it makes them angry. It makes them reactive. And I can imagine that's even more intense when it's super highly qualified people who go into the fields they're in because they want to do some good in the world. So to then inform them they're Mm -hmm. not having their intended impact must be hard. So I guess the best route is education in the first place, right? Where you actually are building in these multicultural competencies that you talk about. So Mm -hmm. multicultural competencies, competencies is an interesting phrase. What does that mean?
1: so it is uh and there's some people that are talking the multi, that in addition to multicultural competence they're talking about cultural sensitivity cultural humility um not just you know in terms of competence because some people the word competence can tell people oh this is something that you can actually at some point attain mm-hmm. and this is something that is basically a, a, a lifelong uh way of approaching things so multicultural competence um competencies relate to our ability to be able to work, to understand, to empathize, and to um, serve in a qualified way. Um, people who are across different uh, ethnic culture and identity groups, whether they're similar or whether they're different from us. Um, so in the case, for example, of, you know, psychologists and counselors and social uh, workers, uh, it means that, you know, People that look like me, which I am more likely to understand their experience, you know, are not going to be the only group that I'm going to be serving for the most part. And if I am to be trained as a social worker, I should not be trained to just serve people who are just like me. The idea is to be able to serve and to understand and to be able to help uh, people who are different than us as well. So multicultural competence, a uh, person is someone who understands, um, their location in terms of again this many layers and many systems of oppression and privilege, mm. um, and understand the experience of people right who have a different uh, location than them, um, and are open you know to continue to address you know the differences in powers, the dynamics, and you know to continue to learn about how this continually impacts people who are who they are serving. Mm. Um, I I have just a quick example, you know, one of my uh classes, you know, I teach both uh counseling theories and multicultural counseling um in the uh in the program that I'm part of, the school counseling program, uh or I did uh, before I uh now switching a little bit more to the administrative role, but you know, those were the classes that I, I would teach in the first semester of people who have been newly accepted into this program. Uh, they uh, take one of those courses with me, the the um counseling theories. And on that first semester, the first class, you know, I'm taking the students, you know, through what we're gonna be learning throughout the semester and in beginning to introduce to them the you know the concept of you know um intersectionality, you know, and that they were we're gonna be working with multicultural competences um and they're gonna be working throughout the program with that, but certainly very much in my class. And uh, one student, uh, which is you know uh a white male uh student, you know, um raise their hands and they have been trained um in also in one of our city campuses for a campus that has less diversity uh the uh, Brooklyn College. Um and he raises his hand he says well you know what is this thing about multicultural competence? You know I just finished my bachelor's and you know none of my professors ever talked to me about it. Hmm. Um So this is, you know, someone who, again, you know, even though they are a student and he's a student, right, um, has a lot of identities, you know, that are privileged, right? So in relation to me, I am privileged in terms of my power of being a professor versus him a student, but, you know, in his position as a person towards me, you know, he's male, he's his gender, he's white, you know, um, Uh, He came from a middle class or middle class background. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of pieces in which he was, you know, um, uh, someone with a very different experience than mine. And from that perspective, right, he's just got a degree, you know, um, taught mainly because still education is is taught mostly by uh, white professionals in in the U.S., even in a place, you know, as uh, diverse as the City University of New York. Um, many of them male, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, he felt, again, uh, powerful enough within his own, you know, say to be able to question my knowledge, and this is something that happens often uh, for, with faculty who are uh, BIPOC faculty, faculty of color, and particularly those who are not um, masculine presenting or male. Uh, our knowledge and our expertise is often questioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so he felt that, you know, what is it that I was teaching, you know, because he didn't learn it. His assumption was that there was something wrong with my teaching. His assumption from a privileged perspective was not that there was something wrong with his learning. Mm. Um, so that in itself, right, um, just, you know, tells you where he was coming from you know, and, you know, also was a, you know, foreshadowing of many of the things he would struggle in the program. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my response, you know, at that moment, you know, was um, that, you know, I, you know, uh, felt really sorry for him that, you know, in all of his schooling, you know, um, what is considered to be the fourth power, you know, in the history of psychology, which is multicultural psychology, mm. that has, you know, uh hundreds of thousands, you know, of references was not something that ha that he had been taught. Um and that hopefully we could make up, you know, for that gap in his learning. Mm. Which was not the the answer that he expected.
0: Um <laughs> I can imagine. What was the reaction? And it
1: was also he was not an answer that he process because again Mm. his assumption right um was as you know as a white male and being taught a lot by white males um about you know mostly white psychology Mm. you know that this psychology that he was taught was complete Mm. right and again this is the blind spot there's nothing in his personal history you know that had allowed him to um at least you know have the openness to think You know, when the world doesn't fit to what I know, it's not that there's something wrong with what I'm seeing, not necessarily there's something wrong with me, but there's an opportunity that I'm missing something, that there's something that I don't know. Mm. Um, So it took for him a while. He did not fully comprehend. There was a cognitive dissonance, which is, you know, what we say, you know, when um, he could not assimilate the new information, but he knew that it was something that was not. is that it was not what he intended mm. to hear, right? Yeah, that's a
0: um, jarring realization that the world isn't necessarily what you always thought it was, or that things just didn't align.
1: Yeah, and for someone that had come, you know, with, you know, having done, you know, reasonably well in his bachelor degree, to be told, like, you're missing, you know, a big part of what has been actually the last uh, 50 years of psychology um, and a reckoning. You know, actually, not always a smooth uh, reckoning, but you know, certainly fifty years worth of scholarship and knowledge. Um, wow. So that was, again, that was the foreshadowing what was, you know, to come for him. Yeah,
0: and also that it's a struggle, and and when you're in a position of privilege, because privilege is just such a trigger word for so many people, but that it's, yeah, it's it's hard because you don't really have to. If you're in a privileged position, you don't have to challenge it. You could sail on in your life as it is because you have power. Privilege is privilege equals power. And you could just Mm -hmm. sail on and become a psychologist and not have to challenge Mm -hmm. or sit in the discomfort of that cognitive dissonance. So cognitive dissonance is that gap between your belief and your action, right? And our brains are Mm hardwired to not like that uncomfortable space, which is why we have to practice discomfort. Why we talk about discomfort on this podcast, because it's, it's an ability you have to practice, isn't it? To just hold that space and figure out maybe you need to change your belief. Or rather than just like paper yeah. it over and try to move on because your brain is uncomfortable becoming conscious of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I imagine a lot of the work that you do is helping people be with cognitive dissonance if they come from any privilege or realizations of you know their own. Yeah, privilege tends to be a comparative shooting match. <laughs> like um, yeah. I'm, I have don't have as much privilege as somebody else because privilege is seen as so negative, isn't it? Well, okay, flips. I'd like to know the flip side of that. How can privilege be positive? How can it be a positive force?
1: Well, actually, it is It is from our privilege that we can actually change mm-hmm. uh, the world. Um, so once we can become aware of our privilege, that we have access to spaces, that we have a voice that other people don't have, um, we can use that, you know, and become allies in the struggle for liberation. Because ultimately, again, you know, all liberation benefits us. Um, uh, being aware of what, you know, we don't know makes us know more about the world, you know, um, uh, makes us, you know, uh, be able to relate to more people and, and use what we know, mm. right? Um, and privilege doesn't mean that you haven't struggled. And I think that that's also a place, a part where people, you know, what triggers people is that oh, you know, you are basically erasing my struggles. Privilege doesn't mean that you have a struggle. Mm-hmm. It means that you have a struggle in that area. So, you know, as a white male, right, it's I'm not, it was not that his life was easy. And, and probably, you know, he will say that he, his life was not easy. He's had a lot of struggles, you know, and that's probably true. But he didn't have to worry about race. Mm-hmm. Race was not one of the issues that brought struggles into his life. Gender was not one of the issues that brought struggle into his life. Mm-hmm. Um, other struggles, um, sure. But not those so and this is where you know each area of our identity you know how we look at our, ourselves and how we found out whether you know we are part of the privilege or the oppressed this is where you know it also helps us understand the world better uh, but then move things you know uh forth um, in you know uh, as a system in a way that will benefit us you know you know eventually both, you know, in the short term and in the long term. Mm. Um, It is there, once we realize our privileges, you know, we can actually act because we have space to act. Um, And I think, you know, for me, from very early on, my mother talked to us about privilege um, and privilege bearing responsibility. So Mm. I was very aware, even before my, my sister became sick, I was very aware um that i held um a uh, privilege in the area of neurodiversity so my mother you know would say you know you are uh, able to learn and to learn easily so it is your responsibility to help others who cannot you know you have not and she would say you know it's this is not because you're special this is because you know um you have been lucky and yes you know i i had the choice to work also at that, right, because, you know, uh, how we learn and how much we learn, we also have to be to be open to that. So I had a choice in terms of growing that piece, but my default already fit the, the default of the educational system, mm. um, and that had nothing to do, and according to my memory, that had nothing to do necessarily with uh, how I was good and other people were not. Um, so from very early on, I was thought, you know, a privilege comes responsibility. Yeah. You know, if you finish with your work fast, you help others Um, that, you know, for different reasons may not necessarily have that. And um, my mother, in this case, again, she was also influenced um, in her opinion by um, uh, the theology of liberation Mm -hmm. uh, from a religious standpoint that also called for, you know, um, a social uh, view as to what injustice and suffering uh, comes from. Mm And, you know, she would sometimes say, you know, like, you can, you can learn this fast because I am able to teach you because I was able to learn also in this way, you know, and, you know, other, you know, other children may not necessarily have that possibility because their parents did not have that opportunity. So this was very much, you know, ingrained in me from an earlier time. And this is why it is really important that this is taught to children from an earlier age because this makes sense to children. The people who have trouble with this are us the adults who were already indoctrinated in something different, mm-hmm. something incomplete. But for children, you can explain things very clearly. You can explain things, you know, very simply, according to, you know, what their cognitive development is, and they get it. And you continue to nurture that. Um yeah. so the earlier we can get this into an educational system, right? both by instruction, but also by example. Mm -hmm. This is where, again, the formation of teachers, educators, and mental health professionals is so important, right? Uh, The better off we're going to be as a society. Yeah, it's interesting because I think back to
0: my own background, which was obviously, well, I don't know if you know this, but very, very religious, very conservative religious from... Wyoming, which is actually kind of weird there. It's not a very religious place, but I grew up hearing this Bible verse called, Well, it said, To whom much has been given, much will be required. And I absorbed Mm -hmm. that really early as a lesson in using my privilege to do things for people who had less privilege. And so I've never really had a hang up about admitting I had privilege because I've watched people, you know, last year when Black Lives Matter kicked off, and, and I saw people really struggle with this and kind of do, you know, white rage and guilt and kind of get stuck there, um, of, of not knowing what to do with their privilege and being angry at kind of feeling called out for being privileged. But I'm so grateful that for some reason I absorbed early in my life that it was, it was a privilege and even a pleasure to be an ally and to use mm-hmm. my privilege to do things in the world. And that's why I've grown up and done what I do in the world, which is mm-hmm. trying to make society more equitable trying to lessen our environmental impact you know it's yeah it's still hard for me to understand why people have a problem understanding privilege but I get it because it feels like they might have to lose something in admitting that they're privileged but but what's also interesting is you know here you sit as genderqueer an X, and a very educated person who acknowledges your own privilege and I think that's useful for people to be reminded of that A lot of us have privilege and it's not just about picking on white people or straight people or white straight people, (laughs) because I think it's, it's where a lot of people end up and they feel kind of attacked. So you have a son and obviously that's, that's been an interesting process because you have a wife and I know there's a whole story about how he was conceived and then running into systems that actually meant you had to adopt your own biological child right
1: yes yes um that was and that you know remains you know one of the ways in which you know it's, it's still sobering in that regards regardless of how much more visibility um people who are queer um lgbtq um uh, including you know uh, queer and uh, gender queer and trans you know how much more visibility we have which Um, does in some ways increase, um, acceptance and, uh, in other times, you know, it can also, uh, foster and made us vulnerable to more backlash in places that are not necessarily as accepting. Um, the work is not an, is uneven, right? And even in societies that, you know, the citizens, you know, are, um, accepting, you know, their laws not, do not necessarily catch up as fast as others. So, you know, um, you know, uh, my son who's uh a, you know a toddler and uh he was uh conceived with you know donor sperm, you know, someone that's a non donor, um and uh also an ally in you know LGBTQ mm-hmm. issues. Um and uh he is concerned uh conceived from you know my genetics so you know as it is it was my um uh, ovum that was um fertilized um uh, but it was my wife who carried and um even in new york city which you know it is um you know and it was it is is still you know a, a place where very thing a lot of things are visible and you know the uh, lgbtq community does have more protections than in other places um we were told that it would be to our you know to my advantage, basically, to my protection to be able to um adopt him because even if he is genetically mine um because you know he was carried by my wife and uh, that's you know who goes um the sign of mother um and I'm you know um, you know a, a different line that says you know parent mm-hmm. um, the genetics do not trump you know the genetics don't count as much as you know Hooper's. Wow. Um so in some states, I would not necessarily have the same uh, legal standing, you know, although my name is in the birth certificate, um, um, if I didn't adopt. And certainly in some countries, and we, we are an international family, um, uh, in some countries, you know, that could also be an issue. So um, it was better for us both within the United States, as some states, you know, are uh, not accepting and hostile uh, still to LGBTQ people, um uh, and some countries too, it was better for us to be able to adopt. So, mm. um you know, and that meant that, you know, incurring a lot of uh, legal fees, you know, that, you know, certainly um, would seem to be unnecessary, right? Um But that it is definitely for the protection of my family and, you know, our, you know, You know our son.
0: Uh, I brought that up because I. It's just interesting to actually bring it back to how we do have a long way to go, and and visibility Mm -hmm. is still such an important thing because when you have privilege, things are invisible to you. And I think the more that people can start Mm -hmm. to put themselves in your shoes and think, if you were to have a kid, my recent guest talks about her journey with IVF as a straight Mm -hmm. a straight woman with you know in a heterosexual couple and this is just a, a whole layer a whole additional layer of having to actually even though that child is genetically yours having to safeguard improve your your parenthood of of your son is pretty mm-hmm. incredible because it's already probably a bit of a stressful process it's expensive but just that visibility and i just thought it was useful to, to sort of shine a light on that but also like your your wife is german so Pretty enlightened mm-hmm. laws there, right, around such things. But I don't know, honestly, because I come from a place of not having had to think about this myself, I don't even know. But um, I love the story about what your son calls you and how you came to that, if you'd be willing to share that, which I think it's, <laughs> it's a great name. It's a great story.
1: Sure. Um, so my wife and my, my wife is German and, you know, I'm Puerto Rican. Um, and, you know, we wanted to be able to, first of all, you know, just a name for him, but also a name for ourselves that would work across, you know, three different languages, right? German, English, and Spanish, because, you know, we are a New York based, a Brooklyn based family. Um, and, uh, I don't identify within the binary, you know, I identify as genderqueer. And, um, and certainly for me it was, important to have also a uh, denominator that was not entirely feminine. Mm. Um, but even if, you know, I would have been okay with mama, um, it's the same thing in German as in Spanish. So the Germans call, you know, the female parent mama and also in Spanish. So we couldn't both be mamas. Mm. I didn't want to be a mama. Um, to be a papa, um was uh very this uh uh disquieting you know and would have been very disquieting i think you know to some of our families of origin mm. um so although that was part of the conversation it also was within the binary so not necessarily something that uncomfortable and then you know i um i recalled you know what is actually on my baby book um that according to my mother um since I'm the eldest, you know, I do have a baby book, right? Yeah,
0: I'm a third born. Mine's just stuff stuck in a book. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. um, my first word was MAPA. So I apparently, you know, very efficiently try calling both of them at the same time. Um, and that was my first word, MAPA. <laughs> um, and for me, that, uh, that fits. That's not comfortable. That's not mine. Uh, certainly produced by myself. and. Um. That's why you know we you know were comfortable with, and I was comfortable with my son calling me. And you know it, it's been an adjustment for both of our families. Mm. Um. Um. Uh, but you know it is. Um. You know that's who we are. So my wife is mama, and I am mother.
0: I love that because also it's just so. Yeah. Three. Three nationalities in there, <laughs> a few interesting titles, mm-hmm. considerations of family and culture and language. And I, I just love that. It's such a beautiful little encapsulation of hopefully the world that we get to live in now. So I guess I'm, I feel like there, there are things to be hopeful about. We've talked about visibility and non-binary thinking and the importance of education, but what is there to be hopeful about?
1: Well, I do think that we are living in a times in which um, both, you know, our technology and the, our ability to know about realities that are far from us are creating more openness, you know, in in people and in you know uh, generations, the earlier generations about difference mm-hmm. and uh, that people can and do live very different from our from us. Um, both far from home and close to home. And, um, and I think, you know, that education, you know, in most places, not in all, because there's always a backlash in places that are more conservative. Um, for example, in Texas, they just, um, basically outlawed, uh, teachers. They, uh, teach about racism. Um, and to teach from a, you know, a critical race theory standpoint. Uh, But, you know, in general, I think, you know, education, you know, overall as a profession, you know, um, is recognizing the need to be able to um, be comfortable with the intersections um, in terms of, you know, identity, in terms of power, in terms of visibility, in terms of representation. And, you know, um, even one of those things being different um, is surely going to have and create a difference, you know, uh, in people to come. Um And again, as long as you know we have those the introduction of that type of way of thinking, because it's also a way of thinking. You know, early on, um, I think that there's you know allowed to be uh, happy about the future. You know, the problem is when we are older and uh, more set in our ways, or we fear and a discourse of fear. Whether it's a discourse of fear that comes from you know our uh, nationality, that comes from you know our religious background when a discourse of fears prevails, right? This is when, you know, the brain goes into black and white mm-hmm. and it's harder to, you know, uh, pay attention to the grace. And we really all lived in the grace. Most of us live in the grace. And it's important to acknowledge the old, you know, all uh, reality. But earlier on in our lives, we are not challenged by what we don't know. Because when we are kids, we are learning and we, you know, there's a lot of things that we don't know. Mm-hmm. And learning doesn't take, our ego doesn't take a hit from learning, right? As we grow older, as the society also holds us accountable for things that we don't know in our jobs, for things that we don't know, um, you know, in other ways, right? Um, It is sometimes harder to stay that open and not feel that if I don't know something, uh, or if you tell me that I don't know something, you're telling me that there's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And that's where the problem, uh, that's where a lot of the resistance also lies. Besides, again, you know, the discourse of fear that prevails in our politics and in many of, you know, um, uh, organized religions. um, It's that part Mm -hmm. that, you know, if I'm caught not knowing something, it's almost as if you're telling me there's something wrong with me. And nobody likes to feel that there's something wrong with them. But if we learn earlier on that this is the fact of life, that we're always learning. And there are always things that, you know, that we can take pleasure in learning. Mm then, you know, we might be in for a different future.
0: I think that's a beautiful, hopeful thing to leave people with, because also if, if you're listening to this and you think, well, I don't live in a major city, I don't live in a place that has a lot of diversity. My challenge, and I imagine you agree with me here, is to think again and to see what's invisible to you, because all of us have privilege and all of us can work on our cultural competencies. and there are likely people around you that you haven't necessarily noticed or even seen or know about who actually need you to see them. They need you to help them become visible. They need you to be aware of your own privilege and to just make space for them. And it might be that they have a different gender identity that they're afraid to talk about in a context that doesn't seem very diverse because it's pretty scary to be different when you're from a very homogenous place or a small town or Mm -hmm. whatever, but they're there. Those people are your neighbors. Those people are in your kid's school. Those people might be in your church, but they're afraid to talk about parts of themselves. So I love going back to this idea of collective liberation. And I was talking about this to somebody earlier today. And I've said it many times on this podcast as a guest, which is that idea that none of us is free until all of us are free. So it's in our interest to see and bring to visibility, those people who aren't feeling very liberated, aren't feeling very seen. So, yeah, we've talked about hope. Is there anything that you wish people would be more uncomfortable about on a day-to-day basis?
1: I would say that is that we don't that we don't know that we don't always know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, the unsettling feeling from being caught not knowing something that we breathe through it you know that's you know a big part of also uh being able to do this work learning how to breathe through it to bring our body into this um so that we counter the fight flight or freeze reaction that comes from fear uh from everything because our body doesn't differentiate between a tiger or you know a threat to our you know who we are it's still fear the same that they breathe through it and that they try to think about this this you know I'm expanding, I'm learning more. And the and having the capacity to learn more, you know, is a, a capacity that talks well about you, right? And that implies that you are, you know, inherently good, which is what we all want to feel. You know, we don't necessarily want to be told that we are bad or that we don't want to hear that people are telling us that we're bad. And that's not what the, that's not what critical race theory says, but it's not what people who are fighting for their liberation say. That is what we are conditioned to hear because it's convenient for the system that we resist. Um, But when we are open to learning, you know, um, that is a good thing.
0: Well, that's like the perfect closing advert for having a discomfort practice. See and feel the discomfort and understand what it is and that. It's easier to just write it off and say, Oh, somebody's telling me I'm bad. I must react. I can move on that way. But just be in it. Just practice it. Oh man, mm-hmm. I can't add to that. I I need to end there because that's the perfect answer <laughs> for this podcast. So I just want to say thank you so much for sticking with me, helping make this this interview possible from our various time zones we've been in. And yeah, keep doing what you do. Education is just so absolutely critical to creating the change that people like us need in the world to be truly ourselves so thank you Maria
1: thank you and thank you listeners too for being open to um, engaging in this comfort practice that is awesome
0: Amen. stay uncomfortable people thank you to my team who helped me produce this podcast to my brilliant editor Dimitar Tzedkov to Thomas Scheffer for the original music and to Luis Amaro for the original artwork. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help me reach new listeners by leaving me a five-star and written review on Apple Podcasts, following me on Spotify, or anywhere else you love to listen to podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed. That's B E T S Y R E E D. If you're interested in bonus episodes and guided meditations I record regularly, head over to patreon.com and become a supporter. For the price of a coffee each month, you get access to a community. So there's really only one thing left to say. Thank you for spending time with me. Stay uncomfortable.